Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. episode is airing on Tuesday, May 10th, 2022. This is Shannon, and as always on a Tuesday, I have an author interview for you, as well as this week's new releases. So, if you love historical romance with zany heroines who love science, then the interview that I'm going to share with you today will be of special interest to you. You'll be hearing an interview that I did with author Elizabeth Everett. We talk about historicals. We talk about women in STEM and sort of how that worked in historical times. We talk about the ways in which she uses some of the tropes that we all love, but allows them to kind of grow and change with her heroines. So definitely pay attention to that if you are in love with historical romance. So let's get started. Of course, we'll have the usual housekeeping information followed by the interview, and then I'll be back for a while to talk about this week's new books. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. You can always post just on the Book Bistro timeline. Some of you have done that. I'm always so happy to see when you've published posts there. You can join our Facebook listener group where you can chat with us as well as with other podcast listeners. You can keep an eye on some of what we're reading. We usually update you each Wednesday with a look at our current reads. If you'd like to get a hold of us and social media is not really your thing, you can email us. That address is thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Book Bistro podcast. This is Shannon, and today I am delighted to be talking with author Elizabeth Everett, whose novel, A Perfect Equation, which is the second in her Secret Scientists of London series, was released in the U.S. on February 15th. So I am so excited to have you here today, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, Shannon. I appreciate it. You are very welcome. Can we start uh, with a brief introduction to A Perfect Equation? Sure. A Perfect Equation, as you said, is the second book in the Secret Scientists of London series. And the aforementioned Secret Scientists are a group of women in London in the early Victorian era, around 1842-43, who are ostensibly part of a ladies' social club, but behind closed doors, they are given leave to and have the workspace to to follow their passion, which is science. Um, And A Perfect Equation is a romance that features a mathematician heroine by the name of Letty Fenley, Um, who's loosely based on an actual um, historical figure. And she is tasked with overseeing Athena's retreat, um, this this social club, 
um, for a time while at the same time she is preparing to enter a uh, mathematical competition um, for which a prize is awarded, um, but she has to do it uh, under the guise of a man. And um, she is helped by um, Lord William Greycliffe, known as Gray, and the two of them have a difficult history together, but they have to come together and work in tandem to protect the women of the club because they are under threat from a um, men's rights group. Um, and men's rights yes. group. So, um, which is set within the book, you understand that it's, um, there, there was no, it's not a historical group per se, but there was during that time a lot of pushback um, against some of the excesses of the previous King George, once Prince George. Um, oh, yes. Excesses of the, of the Regency and of um, some of the political decisions that um, affected the economy. And so um, Queen Victoria was very conscious of cultivating a um, almost a cult-like adoration for domesticity um, and this reinforcing of traditional women's roles. And this club sort of in, uh, embodies a reaction against that. So that that comes into play in the book. Um, but mostly it's, a, you know, mostly it's a traditional historical romance between these two people who are who had a bad history together and who are quite guarded. But over the course of the book, um, give not only each other a second chance, but give themselves a second chance to open themselves up um, not only to romantic love, but to uh, a measure of self-love. So, so you mentioned that your heroine here is loosely based on a historical figure. Is this true of the heroine um, of, of the first book in the series as well? Okay. The first book in the series, uh, Lady's Formula for Love, features a, a heroine who is a chemist. And um, there are there are three or four historical figures, um, women chemists, who I was thinking about when I crafted her, but um, she is more an amalgamation of them. Um, okay. Her science, uh, the, what she worked on was proving Avogadro's law, which I could not find any women chemists who worked on that particular problem at the time, obviously because there were so few, but yes. in a perfect equation, the heroine is loosely based on Sophie Germain. She's loosely based on one one woman um, who is a mathematician and a physicist and um, who also entered a prestigious um, contest for an award. Um, and some of the things that happened to the main character, Letty, in the story also happened to Sophie Germain in her life. So it sounds like you would have had to do quite a bit of research into not only the historical period as a whole, but into the roles that women perhaps did and didn't play in science then. Yes, that has been one of the true uh, joys of writing this series. I am not a scientist, um, but I decided to write about a group of women scientists somewhat under siege because I was inspired by some of the current events 
And I started the series back in 2017. So this is pre-pandemic. So some of these things have become eerily prescient. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very. So just so everyone knows, I started writing this series of, you know, a while ago. So this was before any of this stuff happened. Um, and the joy has been the research has been researching these women scientists and finding out about their lives and becoming so inspired by them and just inspired by and supportive of women in STEM overall. So as you're doing this research, is it pretty easy for you to find the information that you need? Or is this information that is kind of buried and like difficult to actually acquire? So um, there is something called the Matilda effect, which um, oh, I can't remember her name, but there is a great historian of women scientists who, who uses this term. It's named after um, a suffragette, but uh, it's used to describe the phenomena where women in science are hidden behind the men that they worked with. So it actually is quite difficult to do this research oftentimes because women are not identified and they're not yes. celebrated when they work on certain projects. So it's, you know, right now I'm, I'm trying to think of, well, Alice Ball is someone I always think of whenever I talk about this. She was a um, black chemist. And she was at the University of Hawaii, and she discovered a treatment for Hansen's disease, which is what we call, which is the correct term for leprosy. Oh, yes. She died suddenly, and the head of her department took her research and her work and published it under his name. So for Lovely. 60 years... He, he was one who was credited for this treatment, and it wasn't until the intrepid work of a number of researchers pushed her name forward that we renamed this treatment Bell's treatment. So this happens over and over again, and I have found either that um, you have to go oftentimes to universities' collections of letters, or you have to find... Uh, some of these intrepid historians and work back from what they found in order to find these women. Unfortunately, I'm guessing this is true of women in, in so many fields. Um, you know, historically, we know that men were so often credited with work that women did. Yes. I also find in my research that, uh, there are quite a few husband-wife teams. Ah, yes. And while the husband might credit the wife, no one else will. And I think probably the most famous example is um, Marie and Pierre Curie. Ah, yes. Where he would continually defer to her. You continually say, this is, this is her work or this is our work together. She's part of this. And whoever was writing about them at the time would just would leave her out. Yeah, that, that's no good. <laughs> no good at all. So what sort of inspired you to write historical romances that feature women scientists? 
Well, as I said, I started the first book in, it was late 2017, early 2018. And at the time, there was the beginning of a, of a big, um, almost like a pushback against science. I don't know if you remember, but there were marches for science. There was um, the largest discussion centered around climate change, the research behind it, and the negative attitudes that continued to grow. This is a very, this was a very American phenomena. I can't say if I remember it being global, but at the time in America, that's, that's what was happening. So I knew I wanted to write about um, a group of women who were um, subversive in some way. And I thought, oh, well, here's, here's something that's probably repetitive. That's probably, I mean, scientists have probably been held in suspicion over you know, in, historically, it must be cyclical because most of these movements are. So I'll yes. become scientists. It's funny because I'm thinking back of, over like historical romances that I've read over the years. And I cannot think of very many that feature women scientists. Um, the one that springs to mind immediately is the Courtney Milan, um, the Countess Conspiracy and I think maybe there's Amanda Collins that has a female scientist. Like, I'm not thinking of many of them. And so I think that's just a very, very awesome niche that you're filling where we get to see women in STEM, you know, years ago when for a lot of us, like, we don't really think of women filling those roles back then. So I will say that my series is – a series of romantic comedies. So, yes. <laughs> so I do, um, I do have fun with it. There are a lot of explosions and escapees from the, you know, from the, those who study little animals and there's, so there's a, there's definitely a lightheartedness about it, mm-hmm. but the actual discoveries that they make or the actual technology that they use is all historically accurate. So, um, for example, they can't use, um, I wanted them to use droppers at one point to drop in a solution. And of course, vulcanized rubber had not been invented in 1842. So that was out. Little things like that in, in the, in the books, I make sure they're, they're very accurate because I do want to be, um, I do want to honor history and I do want to honor, um, those women who were in science. Um, but it's also there's also kind of a lot of goofbally slapsticky stuff that happens in the labs. And that's um, just part of the way that I write. Well, you know, I think that's one of the things that romance can do so well. It can give you a glimpse into different areas of life. Um, and some of it, you know, can be very deep and meaningful and important. But at its core, it's it's joyful. I agree. I like that's what romance is. Yeah, I think that's a great description. Yeah, it centers, it centers love, it centers joy, and and that's part of the reason I think that as a genre it's um, viewed with such suspicion and derision. Ah, uh, yes. 
because why? <laughs> because we are a culture. And again, I'm, you know, I'm um, from an American speaking as from an American perspective. We are a culture that oftentimes centers um, fear mm-hmm. or greed or power um, and to center love and compassion and community is radical in its own way and therefore suspect. Yes. I love that so much. So what was your kind of journey to becoming an author of romance? Uh, Well, about probably about 14 years ago, I was on a big historical mystery kick. And I was reading Deanna Rayburn and Tasha Alexander. Um, And this was back before Amazon was whatever it is now, when they would actually, if you read a book, they would actually say it was true that if you like this book, you might like this book. And so I got this book called The Perils of Pleasure, thinking it was a historical mystery. Julianne Long. And I read it. And halfway through, I said, this this is not a mystery. There's, There's some, whoa. And I finished it and I thought, wait a minute, this is a romance. And romance is supposed to be simple and um, sexist and no, no, no. Ridiculous. Oh, but I had had I had all of these preconceptions about romance as a genre. I never read. I think I'd read one like actual historical romance, but I never, ever read um, anything like Julianne's books. And I got her next book. I went and bought her backlist. And then I bought all of Loretta Chase's books. And, then I oh, bought, yeah. and I just became enamored of it because it was not anything like I thought it was. It was completely different. It was, it was smart and it was funny and it was moving. And it, the writers like Sherry Thomas and Julie and they were, they were intelligent and they were skillful and their prose was lovely. And I just fell in love with the genre. And then, probably about six years ago, I ran out of books. <laughs> I read so, oh, no. so I sat down and I wrote a very terrible book. <laughs> and then I wrote another book that was not as terrible and I got my lovely agent. And then, um, and then I wrote A Lady's Formula for Love. It's interesting to me, like hearing you talk about, you know, the first romance that you read and sort of the ideas that you had about what it was and what it wasn't. And I feel like it's different when you pick romance up as an adult. Like I grew up reading romances probably way before I should have. And I just remember kind of, you know, falling into those big sweeping historicals. And it didn't really occur to me at that point that this was something that like people would would look down on. You know, like I I didn't have some of those preconceived notions kind of growing up within romance. And so it's always interesting to me when people talk about, you know, discovering romance as an adult and kind of the ideas that society has given us about what it is. And I just think, you know, I wonder I wonder how it would be if like everyone read romance when they were 12. (laughs) So I think about this when I write scenes of physical intimacy. 
I think about, um, well, my children are older now, um, but I think about um, when I write these scenes, <laughs> it's weird to say, but my audience is really like teenage or young adult boys. I think to myself, okay, what could they take away from this? Because I want it to be as consensual, as healthy, as positive, as sensitive as it possibly can to counter in any way, shape, or form the other images that they're bombarded with of, and this is in a, um, I write cis heterosexual couples um, for my main characters. So that's kind of the audience that I'm thinking of. They're bombarded with so many toxic images, so many detrimental images of sexuality. Um, And I watched that with my own children growing up. I watched the media that they consumed and what was in that media. So it's my small way of kind of pushing back on that. And I would be thrilled if someone grew up reading those scenes and and internalizing a, a positive, healthy, empowering message about sex. I will say that the stuff that I grew up reading, like looking back at it now, was probably not the most positive. Um, you know, I was reading romance in the 90s, some of which was written in the 70s and 80s. Mm. And so if we look back to the things that really kind of created the huge love of historical romance, you know, we see like Rosemary Rogers and Patrice Small, books that aren't written today for, you know, very obvious reasons, um, but books with, with strong, powerful women but I, I will say there have always been in some of those older books um, that sort of lack of lack of consent. I've never it's in, so I have never read any of those. Um, I think try to remember like the historicals, the older historicals I've read, I think are all closed door historicals. So at some point, I think I should sit down and read. And read like an old school with a K, like old school historical. Um, oh, yeah. But that's, yeah, that's not, um, you know, maybe I would have, I probably would have had a different attitude. I probably wouldn't have written romance if I had picked up one of those instead of Julianne Long. Romance is such an interesting genre because it has evolved in so many ways, um, especially romance written by American people, um, I think it kind of follows the, like the movements that are, are going on in society. So as our views on things change, I think so does the genre. And so do the, I don't want to say formulas, but the kind of ideas that shape that genre. Absolutely. And you can see that in other genres as well, as well. I would say that in that suspenseful thrillers have become ah, beautiful, much yes. more, you know, they're, they're a lot less um, 
toxic than they were because there's a lot more women writing them. I mean, I think crime fiction is still really, for me as a reader, problematic. Um, the way that women are portrayed, the way that um, people of color are portrayed. Um, but, but I think that your point is correct across genres. I think I, I think about it with the romance the most because it was sort of my first dip into what would be considered like adult literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's the one that I, I return to again and again, even as I read thrillers and fantasy and, you know, straight up historical fiction, I feel like there's always this returning to romance and kind of that, those early days of my reading life that were just so impactful. Um, and that, you know, in a lot of ways, like bring me to doing this podcast and, and talking to authors um, and just spending my life doing what I love best and finding the people who, who love it too, whether they're writing romance or mystery or science fiction. That was really the impetus to start writing historical romance was just how much I, I wanted more stories and there, I was just running out of them. I just love the genre as problematic as it can be um, because historical romance in the States, when, when you see them on the shelves, they are predominantly written by white women. So yes, it would be great to see. I know that um, there are, it's, um, I'm going to, let's see, I'm going to forget people's names. Liana De Rosa is is writing a new series with Berkeley. Um, Adriana Herrera is writing a new series, but I forget which publisher she's writing. So, I mean, there's always probably. Is she doing contemporary or historical? She's writing historical series. She's writing a historical series set in Paris. She is? Yes. Oh, yes. And I've been promised a widget. So I'm very excited. Oh, my gosh. Because yeah. her contemporaries yeah. are just so, so remarkable. I did not know she was writing a historical series. Yes. So they're set in Paris, I think, at the at the um, the exposition. I forget the, you know, the world. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, wow. So, yeah, go, go, go. Because all the details are escaping me because there's like 7000 things going on at once. But um, so so slowly, slowly, the genre is opening up and there are more writers of color who are coming in and doing fabulous things. It's not happening as fast as we all would like. Um, But despite that, I have a great love for the for historical romance. And that is what that love is why I, I write it. So what have you read recently, either within the historical romance genre or outside of it, that you want the world to know about? Oh, my goodness. First, I'm going to feel bad because I know I'm going to leave people off the list. Um, okay. Okay. It's impossible to mention everything you've read. Okay. All right. Let's see. So even though I wish you could. Okay. <laughs> I, um, Kate Pembroke's new book. Say You'll Be My Lady is coming out. Um, It's book two in her series. Um, Emily Sullivan's book, they're both with Forever. Emily Sullivan's book, um, the the title's escaping me. Her book I just read, and it was excellent. Those two are great. Um, 
coming out next month is going to be um, contemporary romances. There's Set on You by Amy Lee. Which oh, is yes. A, oh, yeah. So good. It was so sweet. It was so good. Oh, my goodness. Um, Libby Hubshire, If You Ask Me, which is about a gossip or a, an advice columnist whose life just explodes or implodes either way. And she kind of rediscovers herself. Um, and both Amy and Libby have sexy firefighter heroes, which Ooh. I know we all love those. Um, Maisie Eddings book is coming out next month. A Brush with Love. Um, and the Ooh, that's one I've missed. Oh, I'm not goodness. aware of that. So full disclosure, Maisie and I are very good friends and she and Libby and Allie Hazelwood and I uh, talk a lot about staminists fiction, like, you know, STEM and romance. Yes. Um, but Maisie is a, she's going to be graduating this semester from dental school. And the book is about two dental students. And Maisie also um, is a person with anxiety and her main character, the heroine also has anxiety. And this book, A Brush with Love, is, I think, such an amazing, has such an amazing representation of anxiety in that main character. She's so relatable and so lovable. Um, and it just really um, touched my heart when I read it. So that's coming out next month. Um, and what other romances are coming out? India Holton's um, League of Gentle Women Witches is coming out. Yes. <laughs> Or in either March or April, it's coming out soon. I just um, got an early copy of that. I'm so excited. Yeah, it's super fun. It's if you like the first one, you're gonna you're gonna be very very happy with the second one. Um, okay, what else is coming out that I'm excited about? Or have I just read? I just read. Oh, I cannot stop talking about this book, The Runaway Duchess by Joanna. <gasps> Lowe. Have you read her little... first one, The yes. Duke one? Yes. yes. Okay, which was great. The Runaway Duchess, I wanted to take my computer and throw it out the window because I can't ever write like her. My God, it was so good. It was so good. For a lover of historical romance, oh, I just, it was perfect. It reminded me very much of like a Sherry Thomas in a way, or I don't know. It was just, it was just great. It was like one of my favorites. Um, Let's see, what else? I'm I so read, excited to get I to talk to Sherry book. Thomas last year. I felt like I felt like I like my my romance reading soul was like complete. Like, oh my gosh, like I've read her for such a long time. And now she's actually on my podcast. <laughs> she is the penultimate, you know, she is her language is so perfect. I just want to like rub, I just want to like wear her prose around me like a cape. Like it's just so gorgeous. Um, yeah. I just finished an early read of Eloisa James's How to Be a Wallflower. Yeah. Um, and it was light and lovely and fun and joyful. And I really enjoyed it. Oh, but I also do want to say too that the whole, the reading Julianne Long, she was my first historical romance oh, author. Yes. Was very excited that for a perfect equation, um, she wrote lovely things about it, and it's on the back of that book. And I'm going to treasure it always. That's awesome. I love that. Yeah, it was very. I, I'll admit to. I jumped around and I was like yelling at my family, and my family just looked at me like we don't know who that is. 
<laughs> okay, ma. Thumbs up for you. <laughs> so can we expect more women scientists um, from you down the road? Or are you moving in a different direction? What is next for you? So I have, I'm right now working on revisions. I'm supposed to be working on revisions <laughs> for book Uh-oh. three of The Secret Scientists of London. And there is a teaser chapter at the end of A Perfect Equation. So it is not a spoiler to say that the third book um, is about a, an engineer. Uh, and of course, there is a discussion nowadays about whether engineering is a science. Um, so I touched very briefly on that in book three. Um, uh, she is an engineer and the hero is, um, Grantham, who is, uh, who appears in book one and book two and who is a, uh, a fan favorite. So that is what's happening in book three. So yeah, so we're going to delve into some engineering and I did a little bit of research on that and there, it is very hard to find historical records of women. Oh, I bet. Um, but my guess is they were there and they were doing the work um, because it just it just makes sense. But still today, I think that in engineering, um, women are only 20 percent, 30 percent. I mean, they're they're very underrepresented. Um, so it doesn't make any sense to me because engineering makes so much sense to me. Um Engineering makes zero sense to me, but I'm not <laughs> like a math slash science person. Um, my brother is a uh, survey engineer. Ah. And so he does all kinds of like complicated math equations and equates them to things that I don't understand. <laughs> and I just think like, I, I, I just could never do it. Um, I think, well, and I talk about this sometimes when I talk about writing about women in science, there's this, um, I was talking actually last night with Evie Dunmore. Evie Dunmore. Yes. She was lovely. She did, um, an Instagram live with me last night to launch a perfect equation. And we talk about cultural differences in women in science because she, her parents are from the middle East. And she said um, the expectation when she was growing up um, was that you either become a doctor or an engineer. And so that bias against women in STEM is not as strong or has definite cultural ties. Um, so, you know, um, we we talked and then friends and I have talked a lot about um, this this kind of assumption that if a woman is really good in science, then she's, she is not, um, she can't be seen as a romantic figure that she, no, she, no, no. Yeah. And so we tend to, we, because we as a culture like women to, um, if they're smart, they can't also be sexy. They can't also be beautiful. They can't also be in a romantic relationship because that's, that'd be too much power. Right. So we divide women. So you're either smart or you're sexy. Right. Mm-hmm. You're either dumb and cute or you're plain and smart. We don't we can't meld them both. We you can't be more than that because that's too intimidating. So that's another way that the you know, the patriarchy 
kind of keeps us down is by by giving us these stereotypes and pushing us into them. And that is one of them about science that, you know, women aren't, they can't be good at science. It's too hard for them. Well, I will freely say it is too hard for me, but <laughs> that is not uh, because I'm a woman. I think it's just too hard for me because my brain says no. Math is hard. <laughs> I agree. I have a very hard time with, it was hard for me to do, um, it took a lot of concentration for me to really understand the equations that the character in a perfect equation works, but I oh. wanted to. And so I did, I did, you know, I really did sit down and figure out um, the Sophie Germain prime. She has a, she has an equation almost, she has a, uh, a formula that's named for her. Um so I did. I sat down and I and I read and I read and I read and I really until it really kind of stuck in my head what she was doing. But it wasn't intuitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, some people's brains are just not built that way. But I, I highly, highly doubt that it has to do with what gender you happen to be. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to chat with me today about romance and women in STEM and all sorts of fabulous things. I really appreciate your time, especially so soon after the release of Perfect Equation. Thank you so much for having me. I've just been so pleased and so flattered and so humbled by all the attention that this series has gotten and a Perfect Equation has gotten in particular. So I appreciate the chance to talk to readers and um, I loved spending time with you. Thank you. Can you let listeners know the best place to find you online? They can find me um, at my website, elizabetheverettauthor.com. I am on Instagram at elizabetheverettauthor. This is a theme. We <laughs> <laughs> like themes. I'm on Facebook at Elizabeth Everett Author Books. And... That's about it. All right. So again, this has been a discussion with author Elizabeth Everett revolving around a perfect equation, which is the second book in her Secret Scientists of London series. And it is out now. Okay. So new books. There were quite a few out today. This is another one of those days where I actually had to stop looking because the number um, of things I was writing down was just getting super high, and this would have been a really long episode. So these are the ones that I've highlighted, but there are so many more that I just didn't have time to talk about. So as always, I'm starting with a couple of things that you've heard us mention before. Um, Brooke is looking forward to Miss Rule, which is the second book in the Malice Duology by Heather Walter. This is a female-female Sleeping Beauty retelling. And Stacy is very excited for Set on You, which is a contemporary romance by Amy Lee. So those are books that you've heard us talk about before on our most anticipated releases of May episode. 
So now let's move on to some books that we haven't previously mentioned. Jennifer Weiner is releasing The Summer Place this week. This is the third in not really a trilogy, but she's released three books in the past three years that all have summer in the title. We have Big Summer, we have That Summer, and now we have The Summer Place. And this is about a wedding and the, in, the chaos that ensues when our heroine's stepdaughter announces that she is marrying her pandemic boyfriend. And there's a huge, like, blended family here. So, you know, lots of, lots of family dynamics that I'm really eager to see play out. Um, and Jennifer Weiner is just always such an amazing writer. So this is The Summer Place, and it's by Jennifer Weiner. We also have The Treehouse on Dog River Road. This is by Catherine Drake. It's a romance about a woman who is ready to change everything about her life. And she meets and begins to have feelings for a man who doesn't think he needs to change absolutely anything about his life. So this could be a very interesting uh, situation to watch unfold. It's The Treehouse on Dog River Road by Catherine Drake. Next up, we have the new Chloe Lease. This is Everything for You, Bergman Brothers, book five. So this is Oliver's story. It is a male-male sports romance. And I really enjoy Chloe Lease. I love her disability representation. I love her family dynamics. And I just really like the way she creates these characters that you form strong attachments to like almost from the beginning. Now, this one um, is only coming out in Kindle so far. Um, I'm hoping that we'll see an audio um, release soon. But so far, it looks like just Kindle, so you'll have to get it in ebook. It's Everything for You, Bergman Brothers, Book Five by Chloe Lease. We then have A Show for Two. It's by Tashi Vuyen, and it is a young adult romance about an aspiring screenwriter who falls in love with the undercover indie film star at her school. I'm not sure why an, like a film star is going undercover at a school. Um, if this seems like an interesting plot point to you, like it does to me, then you will want to check it out. Um, again, this is, so once again, this is A Show for Two by Tashi Wuyen. We also have a young adult romance. This is Some Mistakes Were Made by Kristen Dwyer. And this is kind of a friends to enemies to lovers kind of thing. Um, our heroine had a really close friendship with this boy like most of her life and then something happened. It tore them apart. And I guess what he didn't realize was that she's had deeper feelings for him. So she goes back home for a visit and is sort of reunited with him, and she hopes that she can either like, fix their relationship or kind of lay these feelings to rest once and for all. This is Some Mistakes Were Made, and it's by Kristen Dwyer. We also have Breathe 
and Count Back from Ten by Natalia Sylvester. This is about a young swimmer who has a form of hip dysplasia, and she has dreams of working at this amusement park in her hometown that has like a mermaid feature. And so I'm very excited to see this. I love a good disability representation, especially when we see like people working hard to achieve their dreams and, you know, not letting their disability kind of get in their way. So this is Breathe and Count Back from 10 by Natalia Sylvester. So next up, we have the latest from Samira Ahmed. This is Hollow Fires. It is a young adult novel about an aspiring journalist who starts investigating the story of a young boy who was killed by police when they thought he was a terrorist. This examines Islamophobia, racism, um, and just so much of what people of color are going through in this super racist society. This is Hollow Fires, and it's by Samira Ahmed. We also have Dead End Girls, and I've, I've known that this was coming out this year, but somehow I didn't realize that it was coming out this week. I was expecting it later in the year. This is Dead End Girls by Wendy Hurd. It is a young adult thriller about two girls who fake their own deaths and then end up in mortal danger as a result. So probably not what they anticipated when they were deciding to do this. Um, Wendy Hurd writes really phenomenal high-octane thrillers with very relatable characters and some deep themes. I've enjoyed, I think, pretty much everything I've read by her, so I am super excited for this one. It is Dead End Girls by Wendy Hurd. So keeping the kind of mystery thriller theme here that we got from the Wendy Hurd, let's turn to some adult thrillers and mysteries. I'm starting with Dark Circles by Kate Dolan Leach. She wrote Dead Letters a few years ago. This one is about a woman who, she's an actress, her life kind of implodes. She ends up at this spiritual retreat, kind of against her will. And while she's there, she learns of a series of crimes that has been committed around this spiritual community. And so now she's wondering if the people at this retreat are a part of whatever this is going on. And so she starts a true crime podcast to uncover the truth. It's Dark Circles by Kate Dolan Leach. We also have The Murder Rule. This is a standalone novel by Dervla McTiernan. You may remember her from the Cormac Riley series. But this is about a man on death row and someone who is working for a law firm that is supposed to help people who feel they've been wrongly um, sentenced to death. But this person may not be there to help after all. There might be some revenge going on. It's The Murder Rule by Dervla McTiernan. We also have My Wife is Missing by DJ Palmer. 
I am a big fan of DJ Palmer, um, both when he wrote under the name Daniel Palmer and now. But this one, I think the title is pretty self-explanatory. Our main character's wife is missing. And, of course, you know, we are thinking that, like, he's responsible because that's how thrillers go. But is that really the story? And knowing what I know about DJ Palmer's writing, I would guess that it's not the story at all. This is My Wife is Missing by DJ Palmer. Moving to some historicals, we have Forbidden City by Vanessa Hua. This is about the cultural revolution in 1960s China and how one young girl becomes sort of the, the heroine of this story. It's Forbidden City by Vanessa Hua. We also have The Surgeon's Daughter by Audrey Blake. This is the story of a young woman in 19th century Italy. She is the only woman in medical school, and so we follow her journey and kind of how she overcomes tremendous odds to become a doctor. We have Mustique Island by Sarah McCoy. I've read some Sarah McCoy in the past, and I'm very, very excited for this one. This is set on a private island in the 1970s, and apparently Mick Jagger and Princess Margaret were uh, regulars on Mystique Island. And we're following a divorcee and her two daughters who have some problems and drama of their own, and kind of how they get swept up in this super like frivolous, you know, very luxurious lifestyle that they see people living on this island. This is Mystique Island, and it's by Sarah McCoy. We also have All the Lights Above Us. This is by M.B. Henry. This is a World War II story. It takes place on D-Day. And we see things from the perspective of five women from different walks of life, from different places um, that are involved in the war, and kind of how they struggle to survive what turns out to be the most terrifying night of their lives. It's All the Lights Above Us by M.B. Henry. We also have Such Big Dreams. This is by Rena Patel. It is about a woman living in a Mumbai slum and kind of how she's working hard to achieve her dreams, even when it seems like the world is stopping her at every turn. This is Such Big Dreams, and it's by Rena Patel. We also have The Garden of Broken Things. This is by Francesca Monplacier. And it is the story of a family who gets caught up in an earthquake in Haiti and kind of all the things that we don't really know about. You know, since we don't live in Haiti and we only see kind of what the media chooses to report about these things, um, Montplaisir has taken us there with her writing. I am super excited for this one. It has been on my radar for quite a while. It's The Garden of Broken Things. And it's by Francesca Monplaisir. 
And lastly, we have Siren Queen. This is by Nevo, and I'm laughing because I, I just I love the description for this. Nevo wrote um, The Chosen and the Beautiful last year, which is kind of a retelling of The Great Gatsby with magic. And this one is historical Hollywood with monsters. Um, and I'm getting the impression that these are not like metaphorical monsters. They're actual monsters. And then we have a young starlet who is trying to achieve fame on her own terms and is also dealing with these monsters. So if you're looking for a historical fantasy, um, if you love early Hollywood and you wonder kind of what that would look like with actual monsters, this one might be the book for you. It is Siren Queen by Nevo. And that is all I have for you today. I hope that you are reading lots. We are finally able to like keep our doors and windows open a little bit um, in the part of the country where I live. We're hoping we have a few weeks of that before it gets super hot and it's time for the air conditioners. I hope all of you are safe and well, and of course, well read. like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, it kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody.